This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, special guest today who is more of an industry expert or, or guest panelist for us. Who is that? Sarge, we do have a very special guest on today and it's Simon Kristen Marker, who is a director and co-founder of the Demographics Group, headed up by Bernard Salt in Melbourne. So Simon's hopefully going to comment on the, the future of work and what that looks like for us, but often referred to as one of the world's top 50 influences in data science and now running the world's largest Twitter account dedicated to maps and data. Simon specializes in u- using compelling data visualization to illustrate trends we are seeing in the demographic, consumer and social level of society. Simon studied a Bachelor of Geography in Germany before completing his Masters of Urban Geography at the University of Melbourne uh, and is now a columnist for the New Daily and a former columnist for the Australian newspaper. Simon is one of the best people to comment on the future of work for young professionals, as I said, and where our careers may lead us in the future. Simon, I think we're going to have a very wide-ranging conversation with you (laughs) today, but welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, mate, we normally like to jump into what people do in their jobs day to day. We might take a bit of a different tack with you, but why don't you run us through what a demographer is and kind of what someone working in the geography space kind of does? Yeah, well, so if we talk about demographers, there are essentially two different types of demographers. The first one are the, well, let's call them academic demographers. These are the people who actually produce the population projections, um, the detailed, uh, you know, census kind of data sets uh, that are out there. And so that's the academic part of demography. I'm not part of this. I'm part of the business uh, demographer cohort out there. And we essentially take the work of other people, other people's data, and we interpret them for businesses, for governments. We try to make sense of this. So there's an awful lot of um, data crunching and storytelling in, involved in, in my job. So would you be using data from the ABS? Nonstop. There's, okay. there's, there's not a day in the last uh, years that I've not looked at the ABS website. And, it, and um, I, I know from looking at it from past experience that it's not published super regularly. How do you um, get around that when you're only getting a census done every so often? Um, so the Australian census only gets... Um, done every five years and we are very much now at the tail end um, of of the usefulness of the data last census was in 2016 we're now in 21 Um, so we'll have a census later this year and then it'll take another year and a half till all the data is being released uh, bit by bit so we're now in the awkward phase as, as you mentioned we're saying well where does the data come from so it doesn't come from the census the census is by far the best data set that we have in Australia. It is so much better than anything that is available in Europe or in the US, like better by a million miles, um, simply because we don't have those, um, those qualms around censuses, which, which you know, privacy concerns um, in, in Europe stop um, the European countries from collecting such precise data. The kind of work that we can do with the highly detailed census data that we have here is just outstanding. 
So we wouldn't know as much about the German population at all as we do about the Australian population, for example. So that's just a simple joy. But so the census data isn't available. That said, the AVS produces tons of different data sets all the time. So if we are particularly interested in population movements, for example, there is there are regular updates. Um, you know, they're, they're called estimated residential population figures. So this is just an estimate, whereas the census actually counts people, but they're pretty good estimates and they show the trends. And right now after COVID, of course, this was very interesting to look at because we wanted to see whether people are actually leaving the capital cities and are moving to the regions, which is actually the case. So there is an increase of population in the regions. And that's the kind of stuff that's actually worth a lot of money for many people, this kind of information. These are players who want to build housing, you know, big developers. They are very keen to know where this type of uh, population movement is occurring. And of course, then they have more detailed question about in what life stage uh, are the people in the individual towns and you know, how rich are they? What kind of jobs do they hold and where do they actually work? So are they just commuting to work? Are they working from home? Are they people who actually work in low paying jobs and therefore need a different type of cheaper housing product? All these questions um, from the real estate and property players, they flow quite easily uh, from this type of data. But simply, if you look at um, the changing nature of work, for example, over the last really 50 years, when you think about the Australian workforce, you might still Imagine a beautiful bell curve where sure there are a couple of rich folks, sure there are a couple of poor folks, but essentially we all have middle class, middle income jobs. What you are picturing here is the Australia of 1970. And what happened in the last five decades is that we really turned the bell curve around. It now resembles much more a letter U. Over the last couple of years, we, we created incredibly many highly skilled skill level one, we call them jobs, highly educated, highly paid jobs. And we also created plenty of jobs in the low skilled um, end of the, of the gig economy type jobs. So we're hollowing out the Australian workforce. Um, that creates lots of problems. First of all, um, the shrinking middle class just means that social cohesion is more difficult because the, the rich and the poor also don't live uh, nearby, near each other. Um, they don't go to church anymore because we're now the most atheistic um, society that has ever been, essentially. So social cohesion, social glue doesn't come from, from church. Um, so where does where does social cohesion, where does meaning come from? And I think that's an important point, Simon. And I think, you, you know, you're obviously a master of segways. You've kind of taken us on, on the, where I was going to take us anyway. But I think a, an important one for kind of young people listening to this now is probably a question of, what are the opportunities that are going to be available for me in three, four, five years time when I enter the workforce and what are the trends that we're seeing now kind of leading to and, and what does my work life look like then? Can you talk to the trends that we're seeing in terms of, you know, are people really going to move away from the CBDs um, and down to, to the coast and, and live a nice life down there or are people going to start um, taking up more of a micro-credential approach to education and move away from the universities. Is that the kind of stuff that you're seeing? So if we look at, well, simple career advice, you know, you are in high school, you are at uni right now. What the hell should I do with my life? 
Well, the first question that I'd ask is, is it worth going to university? That's a big question for many people. The answer is financially, it is absolutely worth it. The more highly educated you are, the more money you make, statistically speaking. That said, there are, of course, exceptions. A, a well-trained plumber who has a middle-skilled job earns much more than a highly skilled kindergarten teacher who needs to go to university, for example, or primary school teacher. So th there are exceptions of the rule. Who cares? Overall, if you advise a single person, a single young person, you say, get as highly educated as you can. It doesn't matter so much what university and what degree. That, that doesn't help you if you're looking for the kind of uh, degree that you should study. Um, if I go back further to high school students, and I'm thinking about the future of work, and I'm thinking about what is the most important subject that you should focus on, well, I'd first think about the big mega trends that are occurring. We are really producing AI creates all those opportunities. Our life will increasingly be managed by algorithms. Um, there will be more auto automat uh, automatization in, 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 the, uh, in, the, in manufacturing, self-driving cars. All of this stuff will be huge. So should you study uh, STEM subjects? Should you study maths, physics? I don't think so. Because another trend that is occurring just through this is if more and more of my tasks that I do at work are being taken over by algorithms, that means that the stuff that is being left with me as an individual worker aren't so much the repetitive number crunching tasks. They are much more the interpersonal uh, tasks, tasks that have to do with communication, with convincing a person, with making a beautifully crafted argument. Um, and so, Therefore, I would say, as of right now, if you're in high school, the single most important subject by far would be theater. Go into theater, you're communicating with other people. It's real communication. You're also interacting in a real complex environment. Somebody is selling the tickets, somebody is drawing the posters, somebody is doing the lighting, somebody is doing the directing. The theater class in high school is the closest you come to a real business environment. So therefore, um, you know, a big thumbs up to everybody who is doing theater because it will actually be a very valuable skill in, in, in the future. So that said, of course, you do need to also study uh, STEM subjects. You need to be at least data literate. We don't need to become a workforce full of programmers, full of hyper nerds. That's not needed. There'll be a, a stable number of people who do all the beautiful nerd stuff, and then there'll be plenty of other jobs out there. If I'm thinking about the future of Australia post-COVID, the one thing that have, we've been missing over the last 10 years was to build infrastructure. We, there is no such thing as too many people in Australia. That's a ridiculous argument. There's enough land here. There's a matter of, of water availability. Uh, that's, that's a real environmental issue. But on other than that, it is really just a matter of building infrastructure at scale and playing catch up. And now if you run the Australian government right now and you have all this, you know, this deficit, uh, it's, it's annoying, you know, you have to run this economy that really depends on, on migrants, the migrants aren't coming. So that's a bit problematic. How, what's the best thing to create jobs at scale? Well, it's building infrastructure.
And in order to build infrastructure, you need an army of what are called middle-skilled people. All those trades and manufacturing jobs, they're called middle-skilled people. Um, that's people who go to a TAFE. And so we really need to double down on our TAFE sector in Australia. So one of the biggest policies that I always advocate for is universal free TAFE. There's, there's just no way around it, in my opinion. We need to build infrastructure like crazy to actually improve the livability of our big cities. We were a bit um, complacent, if you will, because we had all those beautiful, misunderstood uh, titles of most livable city, uh, you know, handed out to, to Melbourne and, and Sydney always that ranks high. Brisbane does too. Um, cool, wonderful, wonderful uh, marketing uh, data, but it really, it's, it's meaningless data if you look into it in, in more detail. But we do need the infrastructure to better connect um, different areas within a big city and to improve the connectivity of the capital cities and the regional hubs. So anybody who is boldly moving into this field will make a killing over the next decades because we need infrastructure at scale. And well, there is, there's a big argument to be made that middle-skilled people who have also some sort of business um, blood running through their veins, that they will make a, a really good living over the next uh, decades. Simon, as someone that is obviously so entrenched in, in data at the moment and you're trying to figure out essentially what is going to, or you're trying to predict the future based on the recent history, what are you optimistic about the the you know, the next five, 10, maybe 15 years coming out of a global pandemic. And any of you are, can you talk to the precedent that you're kind of basing that optimism on? Um, totally. It's it's the big underlying question that we have in a highly skilled and highly mobile workforce. The, if, I'm, if I'm honest, the people who listen to this podcast are highly educated, smart people. They are part of the potentially mobile global elite. These are people who, if they want to go grab a job in London, they can do that. If they want to go to Singapore, they can do that, and so on. So that raises the question, is it worth to invest your time, your energy, your money, your future into Australia over the next, let's call it 40, 50 years? Well, post-pandemic, clearly the narrative around Australia is extremely positive. Within... Um, within Australia, we might be a bit more uh, picky and say, oh, Melbourne screwed up the hotel quarantine program and therefore had to go in lockdown, into lockdown for three months. Uh, what a horrible state. The international narrative is quite the opposite. Internationally speaking, people look at Melbourne and say, there was a city of 5 million people that had the corona uh, pa uh, pandemic, but they solved it. They got rid of it. That is a much more powerful um, narrative than uh, it might be around Brisbane, for example, where the narrative is, yeah, well, they never had it. Uh, it. It's a better story. We want, we like to hear those comeback stories. And that, of course, is what lots of international talent and capital will think of when they think about where do we invest money. And so that makes me positive about, um, about Australia. But I'm also thinking global geopolitics, I'm thinking about global democracy, and I'm seeing that all the rich nations of Europe, of uh, North America, of rich uh, Asia, essentially Japan, Korea, uh, Taiwan, are aging like crazy. So if you have this international 
aging population, that means that the international capital investors, so picture the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, picture a Canadian pension fund, they have billions of dollars to invest. It's, it's crazy money they have to invest. And over time now, uh, their customers are increasingly old. That means they will invest in stable, secure investments rather than trying to invest in the fastest growing economy over the last 10 years, which of course was China. China. You guessed it, Ethiopia. <laughs> um, so that would have been a bit of a, um, a bit of a gamble. And the big pension funds are not willing to gamble with that money. So that means they're looking for stable, secure, vanilla investments across the globe. Big infrastructure projects. Yeah, I was going to say not to turn this into an investment chat, but I think you've, you've married up two very uh, nice points there that, that infrastructure is going to be invested in by the government and I think it may likely be then sold on to these big pension funds. Exactly, because they are desperately looking for investments. You have no idea what is happening in a very, very cashed up uh, global market at the moment. Money is cheap. So if you talk to people um, who run the property investment arm of the big of a unnamed big uh, Australian super fund, they have to double their investments in property within a decade. That is crazy. It's a, it's a, whatever is available is being purchased. And so you have, uh, of course, the Australian super funds trying to buy this. You have all these international super funds trying to buy this. So money is moving around. And if as a country, you provide a stable government, a stable, you know, democracy to invest in, a livable country, that's helping. So it means capital will come our way. So that was a very long way of answering your question. Yes, as a young person, you should probably be confident about the future of Australia. But within that, you want to pick the opportunities. You want to be highly educated. That helps. Um, because that's, that's the kind of jobs that we're adding. And we pay by um, a level of education. There are a couple of exceptions here. Um, you know how we differentiate the workforce into blue collar and uh, white collar jobs? There are also the new collar jobs. These are the jobs where we don't have a academic um, degree for yet. If you are 18 years of age and for some bizarre reason, you actually know stuff about cybersecurity or you actually know how to program stuff for that blockchain stuff that's going to be big. Do not ever enter a university. Just go straight into industry. There is no talent available at all. If you have the smallest bit of insight, they'll hire you with delicious fat six-digit um, uh, package, packages right out of high school. So this is the, but this is a very small niche of, of hyper-specific um, talents or, or interests, really. The rest of us will need to go to university. Um, you know, it's a fun part of the life cycle anyways. You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and a bit of studying. <laughs> uh, that's, that's okay. And it sets you up well for the rest of your for the rest of your life. Oh, your, your university life sounded a lot more fun than mine did. But um, <laughs> <laughs> mate, with that, I think that there's a, a comparison to, you know, the, the period after, say, World War One and the 1918 pandemic and then the 50s after after World War Two. that there does seem to be a lot of optimism around. And as you say, um, money flying around and, and opportunities to invest are going to be important. Do you want – you touched on an interesting point that I, that I think um, listeners will be keen to kind of – 
chat through the, the importance of or the, the nuance between say highly skilled workers and then people who are sorry, highly educated people and then people who are skilled in those um, areas of the workforce that would probably be called kind of soft skills at the moment that are not going to be replaced by AI and things like that in terms of carers or people that are going to be providing human-based roles. Would you call that kind of synonymous with, um, you know, highly educated, but then people who are highly skilled in those areas as well? Yeah. So, well, if, if we look at the workforce in Australia, there are officially 1,300 jobs. And uh, some of those jobs require a university level degree and some of them don't. So if you just look at the level of education, um, plenty of the carer jobs that you're talking about, um, we're talking about aged care, uh, disability carers, um, these jobs are, you, you need a cert four, I think, uh, to, to do those jobs. So it's very easy and quick to get those qualifications. Uh, and therefore, those jobs are paid extremely poorly. We then have to ask ourselves from a societal perspective, is this what we want? Do we, do, or do we want to up, uh, do, to lift up a whole profession to make sure that the profession collectively gets more money, potentially gets a bit more responsibility uh, thrown at them. Um, you know, small medical procedures could be done by them or whatever. Who knows? So there is a model of thinking this through and saying there could be a new breed of aged care worker um, that uh, actually gets more money for their work. This would be nice to see. And stories like this occurred before. If you think about secretaries, you know, that's a, that's a dying profession. There are no secretaries above uh, under the age of 40. Not at all. Uh, so what happened? Well, bosses learned how to type. New software made their jobs completely obsolete. Well, where are the hordes of angry secretaries roaming the streets? Well, they're nowhere to be seen because the story is nonsense. What really happened to secretaries is that collectively, the profession of secretaries rebranded themselves. There's no office today in, in Australia that has secretaries. They are office managers, they're personal assistants, they're executive assistants. We know that they are still the same workers because both professions, secretaries and EAs, are 98% female. But these women running the new, you know, the new secretaries, the rebranded secretaries, they earn a significantly higher income. They have more responsibility within the firm and they're better trained. So there's a whole profession that really went with the change and adjusted and adapted. So this could also happen, for example, for care jobs. That said, if all of this happens with really strict financial restraints, where is the motivation from a big, probably publicly listed company to pay their lowly skilled, you know, their, their lowest skilled workers more money? And then what's the willingness of the doctor or whoever's foregoing the money that they would otherwise make to also allow that to happen? Exactly. So this is a model. There are a couple of, um, you know, uh, bright, positive examples across the world where a care model has been completely rethought. I think it's called Birdsoak in the, in the Netherlands. It's a, it's a really fantastic, smart, company uh, essentially run by nurses the nursing service run by nurses uh, in small teams um, they're so much more efficient the health outcomes are so much more efficient uh, than, than anything else and they're being paid better and treated better um, but it's a whole paradigm shift that needs to occur in certain sectors the market is very much ripe for aged care 
um, innovations because as of 2030, even the last baby boomer will be of retirement age. Doesn't mean that they're all retired, they'll still sit on company boards, they'll still have talkback radio shows, but more than anything, the baby boomers will move into retirement. That means that they're, um, you know, it's a very individualistic um, uh, generation that they will want to stay in their family home for as long as possible. So offering them an innovative, new, beautiful um, care service will be a wonderful opportunity to make money. If you think about this, a couple of big shifts that are occurring in the next 10 years that you can latch onto. One is baby boomers moving into retirement. Understand the baby boomer market and guide them through their two, three remaining decades. Very, very attractive from a financial perspective. The other big, fat, very delicious market segment are millennials, born between 82 and 99 millennials are now finally reaching family formation stage of the life cycle. And they're by far the biggest generation of, uh, of Australia. So you have this big millennial generation um, that is currently living in one and two bedroom apartments in the inner suburbs of uh, the capital cities. They're now adding, you know, bit by bit, they're adding 1.7 kids to their household. And that means they, those millennials need a spare bedroom. Um, for, for the kids or one and a half <laughs> bedrooms for the kids. And then they'll need a, a separate Zoom room, you know, a door with a, a room with a door to keep the kids and the cats out of the Zoom meetings. Um, so this means the big millennial generation will be driving the real estate market, but they will also completely reshape the geography of Australia, meaning you have this big cohort leaving the inner city and moving to wherever three and four bedroom homes are available. So this is uh, suburbia, it's the urban fringe, it's the regional uh, cities. If you as a business help millennials to do this move and to then, you know, we, we kind of know where millennials will pop up. Uh, if you then service their, their needs, you know, if you are the guy who provides the smashed avocado, chilled out inner city cafe vibe uh, in, a, in, a, in a suburban area that's a good spot to be in over the next couple of years but so that's the kind of strategic thinking that of course professionally i'm helping uh businesses with but from an individual perspective you kind of want to know what the big picture trends are over the next couple of years and then think uh where your career path might slot into on that simon and going through your twitter feed um particularly uh, we'll put that in the, in the show notes for anyone that likes data and, and maps and everything that that is a, a treasure trove your i guess analysis covers so many areas that we've just witnessed there what what is it about data visualization and maps and charts and things like that that really gets your kind of interest going in and why did you go down that path in terms of a profession to kind of show people what's going on <laughs> yeah so my professional journey so as a the, geographer by, by trade, which you know, geography is the, the subject that eventually or essentially um, invented globalization studies. So you look at the movement of, of people, products around the globe. It's very interesting to see how those big mega trends shape all the small stuff. And quite often when people look at the small stuff, they forget to look at 
the big stuff. So that's what geography kind of teaches you, um, you know, this top down approach of thinking. Um, so that it's like you zoom out on, on Google Earth and you view the world a bit more um, from that perspective. So that actually makes sense to me to look at the world uh, like this. But then I didn't know what you know, what kind of job do you have with this? I, I went through my whole university career without having any idea about jobs. So I just get got a job as a as a data analyst for small or smallish employment agency. You know, it's an all right job, but uh, nothing too specific. It's it's the vast majority of office jobs anyone can do who can read or write a tiny bit and who can use Excel. Um, so really, the big employers don't care much about the individual skills because they teach you in the office anyways. So I was working there for, for this little employment agency and then saw a job at KPMG Demographics, which is uh, was headed by, by Bernard Salt and uh, applied for the job, 300 applicants, as I, as I, as I learned later. And, um, you know, part admin role, part research role. And then I... Um, you know, got the interview, but Bernard called me afterwards and said, yeah, well, sorry, we gave the job to someone else. Um, but, you know, what, what the hell do you want with an admin job? And so I said, oh, well, I, I don't care. I just like demographics. I just want to be in the field. I didn't know you could do just the fun stuff of geography for a living. And so he just gave me another job and created a job. Um, so don't ever forget the, um, just let's say, little job hunting advice <laughs> thrown in here stick out in your application if you if you just send out an application without putting at least two full days of work into it don't send it out just don't you need to completely know everything that you can about the employer your application is not about you Nobody cares about you, not the slightest. The application is exclusively about the employer. You just need to prove a tiny bit that you are smart enough and that you are um, enthusiastic. Enthusiasm is the single biggest, or the lack of enthusiasm, is the single biggest problem in a, in a job application. So then you get all those stupid applications. You know, we recently had a, uh, hired a data analyst. And so we got, uh, this is very, makes statistics very easy. We almost got exactly 100 applications. <laughs> um, 90 of them were absolute rubbish. There's, um, don't look at them. It's an insult that they were sent, but it's also, you feel for the young person writing this application simply because they now claim, I've sent out another job application and, you know, still, you know, didn't get the job. Very frustrating. Somebody who really has, um, you know, skin in the game with the employer. They smell it if you just copy pasted stuff. You don't even need to make the most obvious mistakes of still having the old company name in there or something or your company instead of providing detailed feedback of what you learned. That's stupid. But that said, it's actually good news for you. If you listen to this and you learn the fact that there are 90% of the job applications that are absolute rubbish, that means it's very easy for you to stand out in a positive manner. First of all, do all the basics that everybody says, like put your, you know, double, double check everything, you know, format it nicely. Yeah, 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 sure. All of this, do all of this. Simple thing to stick out, have a website and show and tell. 
if you even if you've done a couple of uni projects where you created a couple of nice maps or whatever, put it on this specific website. And it's just the website showing you, you talk a tiny paragraph about your passions, your interests, you're very positive, you're upbeat, and you showcase a tiny bit of stuff that you've done. That automatically, even if the website is crap, puts you in the top 10%. It makes it much more likely that you get an interview. You're not the first person to recommend that. that some One of the, another guests said that the best 10 or $20, however much it was that she spent in the last five years was buying her own domain name that was hername.com. And she's, you know, slowly built it up, but that's something she can always send someone to say, Hey, this is what I actually think about this field. And I write about it all the time. Absolutely. And you want to keep this alive. So this is also when you think about um, social media, since we're throwing career advice out there, there are two ways of managing social media and you need to pick one. So don't ever have a Twitter account where you do, I'm sharing my interest in engineering, my love for Liverpool FC. uh, And I talk to the mattress people online, you know, publicly for everyone (laughs) to see. You need to be very, very clear and strategic and you need to pick one of two approaches. The first approach is the curator approach. This is where you're like the curator of a, of a museum. You know, that the curator of a museum isn't the best uh, artist in the world, but he or she knows what is what best art is, and then they put it on the wall. That's what I do in my Twitter feed, for example. If you go there, I just cherry pick the best and funnest data uh, that I see in, in the internet, on the internet, and I just present it because I think I found it interesting. That's how the first thing started in the first place. At my job at KPMG, I very, very often ran across interesting maps and charts and uh, you know, in my research for the actual work that I was paid to do, uh, but they were useless uh, for, for the specific task at hand. I thought, that's a shame. It'd be fun to share this around. And so I just I had an empty, you know, 100 follower Twitter account and just started sharing it. And there, there was an interest for, for this. So I'm showcasing the best data out there and people like it. But now there are well over 200,000 people, you know, looking at uh, followers and then millions of people looking at this every day. So that's nice. Um, but so that's the curator approach. And you don't need to do this to get a big following. That's not the career advice here. It's just simply that when people look you up, they just see that you are somewhat linked to reasonably smart stuff in your field. That's good. And you've been doing it for a long period of time. It's Ex- not just exactly. You, if you do this consistently once, twice per week, do it for five, six, 10 years. This will look really good. People notice this. And because you've regularly in in front of people's faces, they would actually think of you when an opportunity comes along. This is actually how people think. And the other approach is the portfolio approach, where you essentially take a little sample of your work whenever you do something and you present it online. This is, of course, very much uh, useful if you are a 3D designer, an artist, if you have any, if there's some sort of obvious visual um element to your job, then that's a no brainer. But even if you are writing reports or something like this for a living, make sure to actually say, you know, make a posting about this. And another little bit of social media advice, never ever do something like, check out our interesting report about the top 10 business tricks. That's poison, that's spam. On social media, you always want to give. And this is even, uh, you're asking for something. If you say, here's a link that you need to click. 
you need to provide a tiny bit of insight in the little uh, 280 characters on Twitter, in the little bit that you have on LinkedIn to, to talk about. Provide insight, constantly provide insight about your field, about your own work. And that's how you, that's how you get, uh, you know, get noticed eventually. Um, so that's the, I'm taking a very long time to answer your very short question. I think it's a very detailed, man. I think it's really important um, that people understand how to use social media because it, it is such a great way to advertise. Um, one final question before we wrap up, you talked about the fact that there's 1300 jobs that, uh, that exist in Australia. And we spoke about the U curve in terms of um, wealth spread. What types of, of what of those thirteen hundred jobs are we seeing in that top half of the the spread of wealth? Well, this is where all the uni educated jobs are. Lots of IT jobs are growing, and simply because we we grew these highly skilled jobs at such a fast rate. This is why we needed migrants to come to the country. There, there would have been no way that we could have filled all those jobs over the last even two or three years that we created um, with the people that are already sitting around in Australia. That doesn't work. The way that the economic model works here is that we just grab the top talent from abroad and because they want to come to Australia, because we're seen as, a, as an attractive destination. And that means wonderful enough that we can grow our economy. We then want to make sure that we actually spread the success more evenly. That's the problem. And that's a problem where we miss the middle class. In this U-shape model, we're missing the middle class. So if we build uh, heavily on infrastructure, we're amping up the middle class and hopefully get a couple of the lower skilled workers to transition into middle skilled income, middle skilled jobs. That's a wonderful societal goal. But if you look at just the top half of workers, those skill level one workers, the listeners of, of this podcast workers uh, that are at university, that are at high school, thinking about their careers, progressive, you know, just constantly thinking about their careers, they'll face one big problem. It's the idea that my job must be meaningful. It's a lot of pressure that people put on themselves these days. And it makes sense to me because the meaning of life doesn't come for young people from religion anymore. It doesn't come from family just yet, simply because they don't have families. You only start your families in your mid-30s these days. So there is a good lack of, call it 15, 16, 17 years, where you don't know where your meaning in life comes from. So it might as well come from the place where you hang out 8, 10, 12 hours per day. Um, so therefore, all of a sudden, work is tasked with being meaningful. And that's a big burden. If you think about uh, the Australian workforce, 13 million jobs. Will we be able to perfectly align 13 million jobs with 13 million individual passions, desires, and talents? No, we won't. So we are not helping our, uh, our young people at all when we essentially um, force them into having a meaningful job. But that's exactly what we do. If you know, if you if you if you if you're young and you don't know what to do, of course you go onto YouTube and you type in career advice, and you'll hear the same narrative every single time. I was once stuck in a in a in a meaningless job, a nine to five, stuck in the hamster wheel of work. It was was miserable. I hated every second of it. But then one day, I looked deep inside my soul, and I discovered my true purpose, my true meaning in life. And then 
I created a startup. Sure, it was it was hard at first, very hard, but eventually I succeeded. And now I jump out of bed in the morning and I run to, to the office because I can't wait to get to work. This kind of narrative is literally what most of the career uh, TED talk type uh, stuff uh, gives you. And it's, 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 it's well-meaning and it will actually lead to positive things as well. It will lead to more young people having a go at creating a meaningful job, you know, creating a startup. That's wonderful. It might even lead to the, some of the big uh, uh, corp corporations to take their social corporate responsibility issues more seriously. That's also great. But more importantly, it will lead to uh, work image issues. That's the office equivalent of body image issues, where we look at these sexy models and bodybuilders on Instagram, and then we look at ourselves and we go, <laughs> could be better. This is how people view their jobs. There are plenty of young people in cushiony jobs at big banks, at consultancies that are miserable. They think there must be more to life than this. I, I think it's an important point, Simon. And it's one we've touched on previously before. Of course, chasing a meaningful job is a good thing. And it would be really nice if everyone got a meaningful job. But also I think there's kind of an importance of kind of being ready to be content with a job that you find interesting or it's okay to go there day to day because at the end of the day, you have to earn money and, and, and live. But there are other parts of your life that you can try and find meaning in as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be 100% your job. <laughs> oh, ab absolutely. It's, it's, it's so true to, to get the, um, you know, to have people relax a bit about this because you put an awful lot of pressure onto yourself uh, every day that you go to work and that you go, well, this job isn't, this job isn't me. And you feel like, oh, maybe I'm a persona at work. And you go, no, that's actually fine. And if you, if you went to theater class often enough, maybe you became a bit more comfortable uh, with, uh, you know, imperson impersonating uh, a role and realizing that it doesn't need to be you, the true you, your inner core of humanity that you are. You, you can still be this around your friends and pets and uh, sporting clubs and whatever, you know, whatever the full canvas of life uh, holds for you. It doesn't need to come from work. Plus, while you're in your job, you need to be confident and positive and you need to be aware of the fact that you don't, um, you don't discover meaning. You create meaning. And you have no idea how this works at first because you work, it's a step-by-step -step process. It's very rare that people uh, sit around somewhere and they have this wonderful epiphany and then create some meaningful startup or, you know, they they dedicate uh, their life to, to an orphanage or something like this. That's not that's not how this works for, for most people. Simon, I think that's very all very valid points and a great place to leave it. So thanks for coming on the show today been awesome to hear about how students should be doing their theater studies so they can prepare to be the new age workers of the future and also hear about how um, the infrastructure of space is is one where one can likely make it make a good income in the next 10 to 15 years so thanks for coming on the show uh, was a delight uh, to chat to you guys thanks Simon. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.